Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Just six months ago, it was the premier political contest in the nation, a young congressman from the border taking on Senator Ted Cruz. Beto O'Rourke drew national support and attention in his effort to unseat Cruz. He ultimately fell short in that election, but now he has his sights set on the presidency. And Beto O'Rourke is our guest this morning on Close Up. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me out. Appreciate it. Let's start with two school shootings in two weeks. Uh, Shocking to Americans, no matter how often it happens. Uh, But in this case, we had two young men giving up their lives, essentially, Mm. to try and stop these shooters. First, uh, what's your plan to deal with gun violence? And also, do you feel like you need to work around this issue in some ways because of the controversial nature of gun violence or the gun issue and address the mental health thing first? Yeah. First of all, like you, like everyone in this country, we're thinking about those families who lost loved ones in those two shootings. We're thinking about those two extraordinary heroes, Riley Howell in Charlotte and Kendrick Castillo just outside of Denver, who ran towards and not away from the gunfire. And then we think about all of our kids who go to school thinking about what might happen in their classrooms, how they would confront an active shooter, because so many of them feel that it is inevitable going forward. We can't accept this. We have to follow the lead of those young people, those students who led the walkouts from their schools, the marches for our lives, those moms who demand action. And yes, lead on universal background checks, which have been shown to save lives in those states that have adopted them. Lead on banning the sale of assault weapons or weapons designed for war because they're effective at killing people on a battlefield, but have no place in our communities. Lead on red flag laws so that when someone is displaying a tendency towards harming themselves or someone else, we stop them before they can shoot and kill themselves or or someone else. Uh, This country demands that kind of leadership right now, or we will continue to see tens of thousands of our fellow Americans die by gun violence each and every single year. That has to be our focus. And yes, it has to be complemented by universal access to world-class health care, including mental health care, um, so, so that those who need treatment and care are able to get that. Um, but we should not delude ourselves into thinking that uh, the source of the problem is people who are able to get their hands on guns who should not be able to, who do not go through background checks, who are buying weapons of war and then turning those on the people in their lives and in our communities. Safe to say you think that federal firearms licensing goes too far? I'll tell you what, um, I I think that Senator Cory Booker has made an incredibly bold proposal uh, that's commensurate with the crisis that we see in this country. More than 30,000 of our fellow Americans will lose their lives to gun violence this year. And so I think his, his, his request of us that, that in addition to those steps that I just talked about, we put everything on the table to make sure that we address this crisis with the urgency that it demands. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think he is to be commended for, for doing this. I think we should explore that idea and, and make sure that at the end of the day, we are focused first and foremost on saving the lives of our fellow Americans. And so I'm, I'm grateful that he's, he's making these proposals. And I think that's something that should be on the table to be discussed. Just about every Democrat running has climate change as a top issue, not just for the environment, but in general. But once you've addressed that, I know the Paris Accords and returning to that are top priorities. But once you've addressed climate change, what is that top environmental priority for an O'Rourke administration? Well, climate change, in, in addition to joining 
Paris again, um, enforcing Kigali, which deals with the HFCs that are many times deadly in terms of greenhouse gas effect, um, stopping all new leases on federal lands and federally protected uh, waterways uh, for oil and gas exploration and ensuring that current leases reflect the cost to our planet and to the environment. I want to make sure that we're investing in communities that are at the front lines of climate change, those who are enduring the storms and the flooding, the fires, the disasters that are not natural, not caused by God or by Mother Nature, but by us in our warming of the planet, one degree Celsius just since 1980. We have to do everything we can to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, to be halfway there by 2030. Our plan says that we will mobilize more than $5 trillion over the next 10 years to invest in the next generation of renewable energy technology to free ourselves from a dependence on fossil fuels, to put farmers in the driver's seat to plant more cover crops to pull carbon out of the air, and to lift up those communities who have disproportionately borne the brunt of pollution and climate change so far so that they can lead in this transforming economy and country and help us to take the lead uh, internationally. And, and in New Hampshire, I'm hearing about something that I hear about all over the country, and that's the quality of our drinking water. Um, learning about PFAS and its contamination of water and the need to have federal leadership to use every power within the federal government and the EPA to protect our waterways, our soil, and the air that we breathe. Do that here in New Hampshire and across this country, and everyone will have a chance to step up and meet the greatest challenge we have ever faced as a country and as a civilization. Speaking of energy, the fossil fuel industry is integral uh, to your home state of Texas. What's your perspective on fracking? Is that an environmentally responsible practice? Are we going to be looking back in a century and saying, gosh, I can't believe we did that? Look, for as long as we are burning fossil fuels, and I showed up to this interview in a Dodge Grand Caravan burning gasoline, I want to make sure that we, we extract those resources from this country, not from unstable parts of the world where we are at war today or those that we threaten to go to war, as our president has done when it comes to Venezuela. Uh, I'm grateful for our energy independence and leadership, including in states like Texas, but we've got to speed this transition off of fossil fuels completely to renewable energy. And we have to put those local stakeholders and communities that face uh, the challenge of whether or not fracking will take place, allow them to make that decision for themselves. Um, so I wanna make sure that property owners, homeowners, farmers, and ranchers uh, have the opportunity to decide whether there will be fracking or energy exploration on their lands or, or whether there, there will not be. But, but the, the larger issue is transitioning as effectively and as quickly as possible off of fossil fuels so that we don't have any more um, fossil fuel energy exploration, fracking or otherwise in this country because we are fully embracing wind and solar and geothermal and those renewable energy opportunities that also are job creation opportunities. Two fastest growing jobs in this country today are wind and solar jobs. Let's make sure that we invest in that direction. You like to talk a lot about the binational nature of your hometown of El Paso with Ciudad Juarez, uh, right across the river there. I'm curious, uh, a lot of people when they think about the border, and we talked about this with your former colleague Will Hurd last week, there are misconceptions. A lot of people think it's all so dangerous. But what about Juarez? Uh, if someone from New Hampshire asks, hey, I'd like to go to Ciudad Juarez, is it safe? Should they go there? Look. El Paso is one of the safest cities 
in this country, and it has been for 20 years, in large part because we're a city of immigrants, and I'd say in large part because we're connected to Ciudad Juarez and the rest of the world, forming the largest binational community in this hemisphere. We do see more violence in Juarez than we see in El Paso. But having said that, Amy and I have taken our kids uh, as recently as uh, a couple of months ago over to Ciudad Juarez for dinner, um, to be out uh, on Avenida Juarez uh, on a Saturday night to take in the music and the sights and the sounds and, and folks who, who are dancing out there um, in, in the streets. It's, it's an incredibly beautiful, proud, um, powerful community. Um, and, and we should be helping to, to reduce violence there. In part, that's connected to demand for illegal drugs in, in this country, uh, an interdiction and imprisonment first uh, war on drugs policy. Um, but then some steps that, that Juarez and Chihuahua and the government of Mexico need to take to ensure that rule of law is, is respected there. Um, so we've got some work to do, but, but I don't want to give anyone the impression that our proximity to Juarez or that border communities like mine in El Paso are, are unsafe because, in fact, they're among the safest cities in the United States. In addition to the policy debates, there's a lot of soul searching in the Democratic Party, a lot of introspection about issues of race and privilege. I'm curious, uh, your status as a tall, handsome white guy, do you think that played or helped at all? in your ability to transition from a losing Senate race to running a very credible campaign for the president? Perhaps at some level it does. Uh, and and I'm, I'm well aware, especially as I listen to those who have not grown up with my privilege, that um, I've enjoyed opportunities that, that others cannot count on in this country that, that don't just help to explain the fact that I'm running for president, but my ability uh, to attend college or to start a small business or uh, to purchase a home or to have a different interaction with the criminal justice system than others who do not look like me have with the criminal justice system. But having said that, at, at this defining moment of truth for our country with the greatest set of challenges that we have ever faced, Coming from the part of this country that occupies so much of the national conversation, the U.S.-Mexico border, and being able to tell a, a powerful, positive story of, of who we are, that we don't just tolerate, but we embrace our differences, and that makes us stronger and more successful, and yes, safer, to have campaigned across every one of the 254 counties of Texas to write nobody off, show up for everyone, and bring everybody into the conversations around gun violence or opening up this economy so that it works for everyone, or health care for every single American, not as a function of privilege or luck, but as a human right, and then confronting climate change before it is too late for the generations that follow us, that's going to take every single one of us. And we were able to show in Texas that we can bring people together regardless of the differences of race or how many generations you can count yourself an American uh, or who it is you pray to, whether you pray at all, who you love. Um, none of that can be allowed to divide us at, at this extraordinarily important and defining moment for our country. And I think I've got a track record of serving in a way, campaigning in a way that brings people together. And at this deeply divided, highly polarized moment, this country needs to come together around these shared challenges. Just want to touch on foreign policy very quickly. Let's say you're settling in behind the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office in January 2020. Who's your first phone call uh, when it comes to calling a foreign leader? Our closest relationship in, in so many ways, um, both by land, by family, by culture, uh, is Mexico. 
Um, we had 400,000 apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border last year. It looks like we will have more this year. Mexico, if it is a relationship that is treated with respect, can be a partner in addressing the root challenges of the asylum seekers that we see here, working with Mexico and other partners in the Western Hemisphere, um, elevating the Americas as a foreign policy priority, will allow us to invest and, and help with solutions that allow people to stay in Honduras, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, as violence is reduced there, as economic opportunities are increased at a fraction of the cost of building a 2,000-mile, 30-foot-high, $30 billion wall to separate us from Mexico. We can work with one of our closest trading partners, one of the largest purchasers of what we make and grow in this country towards shared security success and, and economic success going forward. I want to make sure that after an administration that has turned its back on our friends and our allies and our fellow democracies to embrace strong men and dictatorships, um, that we get back to those relationships that are important to us and, and critically important to a, a better, safer, more prosperous future for the United States of America. Congressman O'Rourke, we thank you for your time on Close Up. We'll thank see you out you. there on the trail. Very grateful. Appreciate Thanks. it. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. He's in fighting shape from two years on the campaign trail. The message is honed. The plans are out there. And now John Delaney is working to build some momentum with voters. And that's part of what brings him here this morning. Congressman Delaney, thanks Adam, for joining great us. Great to be with you again. We appreciate the time. So uh, you had the good fortune of planning a paid family uh, leave roundtable uh, 24 hours after Governor Chris Sununu vetoed paid family and medical leave legislation here in New Hampshire. Uh, you're a businessman. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Big debate in New Hampshire over whether a uh, half of a percentage uh, premium on employee wages is an income tax. What's your take on that? Uh, well, you mean to fund the, the that was the proposal that's, to fund the, the mechanism. The bottom line is that paid family leave is actually smart economic policy, right? So I think you got to figure out how to pay for it. And, you know, I, you have very specific rules here about taxes or not. I mean, it's a fee to fund a program. It's a tax to fund a program. The, the bottom line is it's smart economic policy. You've been highlighting entrepreneurship in your campaign as well. Uh, let's take a step back here, though. At what point does the government get in the way of business? Uh, well, the government shouldn't crowd out business. Right. So I'm very much against the government competing with the private sectors in areas where the private sector uh, can compete successfully on its own. So I don't like the government crowding out the private sector. I think it's a bit of a false choice, but I, because Adam, the way I think it works is the government and the private sector should work well together in achieving objectives. What's an example, though, of them not working well together? Something you've seen in your time when you were in Washington where it was a little out of bounds and hurting business. Well, I think you can have duplicative regulations that are a huge problem. I mean, I saw in my own businesses that I ran, right? I started two companies, took them public, created thousands of jobs. And I would find myself from time to time having to deal with multiple government regulators, right? When there should only be one. Because that takes away time and energy from management team and companies dealing with kind of a lowest common denominator effect where you got multiple people coming in to regulate you and you just have to kind of go to the one who's asking for the most stuff or wants the most documentation. So that's a waste. Also, overly burdensome regulations really hurt small businesses and entrepreneurs because big companies have plenty of resources to deal with 
um, regulations. They can hire whole departments to deal with it. But we've, we're seeing right now with community banks, for example, how overregulation is actually hurting community banks. The big banks can handle it fine. They have huge departments that deal with it, and they should be regulated to a higher standard. But we're losing so many community banks around this country because of overregulation, which is why I've been a proponent of freeing up some regulations on community institutions so they can be in local communities and lending and helping companies grow and those kind of things, right? Because we're losing community banks all around this country. It's because of too many regulations. They have to get bigger to handle them so they merge or get sold to bigger banks. Under the radar trade was a very potent issue in 2016. I can't tell you how many Trump rallies I went to that year where I talked to people who were like, you know what, if he's going to bring these manufacturing jobs back that they remember, yes. uh, that they were really going to support him. Under that sort of aegis, uh, do you trust the president to negotiate these trade deals, these highly sensitive, high-wire acts no. right now that are going on with China? Well, the first thing he did was tear up the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I supported President Obama to try to get done. I was one of the few Democrats to support the president. It was smart economic policy. It was really smart geopolitical policy. If you want to compete with China, right, because they are our main competitors, that would have been a great way to do it because it would have put us, the United States, at the head of a table of 14 nations, 40% of the Asian economies. We would have led a trade block in competing with China. He tore that thing up. He doesn't understand what we're dealing with China. He thinks the issue is the trade deficit, when in reality, the issue is that China has acted like pirates, stealing our intellectual property, building illegal islands in the South China Sea. So no, I don't think the president understands. This trade war he's engaged in is hurting the American people. It's hurting farmers. It's hurting rural America. It's raised the price of steel. People think that GM plant in Ohio and Lordstown closed because of this trade war. So I don't think the president really understands the issues with China. He's right that we have issues, but I don't think he's diagnosed the issues correctly, and his prescriptions are absolutely not the right things. Long answer, but the short answer is I don't think he really understands the issue with China, and therefore I don't think he's going to negotiate, in my judgment, a good trade deal. Let's shift to firearms policy, yes. two very high-profile school shootings sure. in the last two weeks. Let's take a step back here, though. A lot of people view their Second Amendment rights as something fundamental uh, that they uh, reserve as a right to protect themselves from tyrannical government, the possibility that one day government will overreach and they will need to defend their own liberty. Is that a reasonable reason, in your opinion, uh, to hold on to any gun whatsoever? Well, listen, we have a Second Amendment. We have the right to bear arms in this country, right? That's a constitutionally protected right, and I support it. But we also should have universal background checks, right? I mean, and most Americans agree, 97% of the American people believe that we should have universal background checks. We should have things called red flag laws, which my state of Maryland has, which allows a family member and a family to go to court and say a member of our family has a diagnosed mental illness and they have a firearm and they've threatened someone, including themselves, and we want the court to intervene. Those are common sense gun safety uh, proposals that most Americans broadly support. And those are permissible under the Second Amendment. I mean, the courts have looked at this. That's what we should be talking about. How are we gonna get some of this common sense stuff done that the American people broadly want? still in Washington. Democrats believe that the president is guilty of something, even if he wasn't charged in the Russia investigation. Uh, there's a lot of talk of the I-word impeachment, and that's been bubbling up here for a while. But do you believe it's reasonable uh, for Democrats to move forward with these things when the president hasn't been charged with any crime? Look, I think what the House of Representatives has to do, and I think uh, Speaker Pelosi has been spot on, 
They have to continue their oversight and investigative responsibilities. They have to get to the bottom of some of these questions. Mr. Mueller should testify. Attorney General Barr should testify. Members of the House should see the redacted, the unredacted report. They have to continue their oversight and investigatory responsibilities. Where that takes them is up to the House. But the first step is actually to talk to people like Mueller, to talk to people like Barr, and see some of the information in the report. And that's what they should be doing. That is their job. And that's what they're supposed to be doing on the, uh, as it relates to the American people. And then, you know, where that takes them is, is up to where those findings are. But you're not there yet in terms of impeach the president. Which impeachment is a political process. It's something that's used when an overwhelming majority of the American people want a president removed. And we're not there yet. Part of the reason we're not there yet is I don't think they've even finished their investigation. So that's how I think about it. Has the president done stuff? Is he in violation of the emoluments clause, which I think he is? Yeah, he's done these things. But it's a political process at the end of the day. And I think it's not worth talking about at this point. I think, again, Speaker Pelosi has, has got that pitch perfect. I think what we have to do is the House has to finish its investigatory work, and then it's up to the House. You spent some time at the New Hampshire Veterans Home uh, during this yes, visit. Great facility. And uh, not necessarily a VA uh, issue, but what's your plan, though, to reform the VA uh, from Washington? Well, what I want to do is I want to give our veterans more access to health care options. I believe in the mission of the VA. I think the VA is an incredibly important part of veterans' health care. But I also want our veterans to have more options to access health care in the private market. When the VA was created, we had much more limited options for health care. And we needed to create a dedicated health care delivery system for our veterans. Things have changed, obviously. We have this enormous private health care economy. I want our veterans not to have to drive for hours to get care. I want them to go to the, the nearest point of care for them and have them get the best care possible. But I also want our VA to be strengthened and reformed so that highly specialized services that our veterans need, like mental health, amputation services, services that are specific to injuries uh, that our servicemen and women have suffered, that, it become, that they become best in class in those things. So I favor more of an open model where the VA is there and it's strong and it's reformed, but our veterans can also access health care. Why should a veteran who lives here in Ma Manchester you know, not be able to access the most convenient point of care for them? Cost is no object? I think the American people support our veterans having access to care. And I think ultimately, if you want to control cost, you want this kind of open system, because that allows the system over time to become as efficient as possible without duplicative services. All right, Congressman Delaney, we thank you for Adam, your time here on Close Up. We'll see you out there on the trail. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.